Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, my name is Eric Step, And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back. And today we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do. So Scott, I'm going to have you run with it. Okay. Well, uh, I'm just going to say right off the top that um, this is this is really going to be like our second year anniversary episode. Just this as is great. We don't keep track of these things very much, but I just looked at the calendar and realized we started two years ago. And uh, so we're just going to call it that for sure. And partly because we have a special guest here today. Uh, we are here with Caitlin Chess, and she wrote the first book that I finished in 2023 called mm. The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And so welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. We are really glad that you're here, and I'm really glad you wrote that book. Hmm, thank you. Yes, I was telling Caitlin before we started that uh, I had spent uh, 28 years as a pastor doing my best to avoid uh, politics, only to find out in uh, 2020 and, or excuse me, 20, yeah, 2020, 2021, that the church wasn't formed uh, in a way that enabled it to deal with the political demands that were placed on it during that time and i realized i'm not the only one and so uh i think she's put some uh her finger on something really important when she talks about spiritual formation um for the sake of our neighbor so thank you so much thanks scott so, so i'm wondering caitlin first of all uh, this is going to seem strange but what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this why are you why are you talking <laughs> about uh politics after all, how'd you get started doing that? Yeah, so I have kind of always been interested in politics. I was a debater in high school. I remember kind of hashing it out with my parents and, and enjoying getting into political conversations. And I thought I would go to law school. And I thought, oh. you know, I'm good at arguing. I like research. And then um, I went to Liberty University from 2012 to 2016 and got a degree in history and political science. And during the lead up to the 2016 election, politics was incredibly present at Liberty. Um, we had a lot of Republican candidates. We also had some Democratic candidates. Bernie Sanders came and spoke. Um, we had a lot of political media on campus. Our president was very involved in politics. And so I was, you know, in a formative stage in my life. I was asking a lot of questions about my faith and about my life and um, reading a lot of books that my mentors were giving me. And at the same time, politics was really in my face and it became really clear to me, even as a young person in college, that there was a spiritual formation element to it, in part because I was there was kind of a resurgence in evangelicalism of thinking about spiritual formation. And I was watching the the really formative power of being in like a big stadium with politicians speaking every week, mm. following up mm. worship music. It was just this very visceral experience. And then I graduated from college and thought, you know, my senior year, I kind of really God intervened in my life. And that's a whole other long story. But I I really felt 
distinctly that I was supposed to go to seminary. And I didn't know what would come after that. I had no plan for, I didn't feel called to like a specific job or anything. I just thought I'm supposed to go study the Bible. I don't know why. And then I started seminary during the 2016 election was still happening. Mm -hmm. And so I was around a bunch of fellow students who, like me, were trying to figure out, you know, what's happening <laughs> with this election and also were training to go into ministry. And like I said, a lot of interest in spiritual formation. I had a great mentor who was teaching spiritual formation classes. And I just kind of kept telling him, like, I think we need to be talking about politics in this. And I'll mm-hmm. never forget one of the classes I took my first year of seminary was this class called Spiritual Formation in Contemporary Culture. And the professor was amazing. And we talked about consumerism and we talked about gender and we talked about race. And we were supposed to have a unit at the end of the class on politics. And like a lot of, you know, absent-minded professor types, we never got to that unit. Like the semester ran out of time. And so I wrote my whole final paper on why we should have talked about politics and how all of the other units that we went through had some element of politics in them and we should have talked about it. And that professor and in his graciousness to me did not take offense to me (laughs) writing that kind of paper and instead said, let's do an independent study and let's, you know, find some books that really deal with this intersection. Mm. And, and so that really, I mean, at the time I thought, oh, this is just my current interest. And then in the course of that independent study, I really was introduced to the field of political theology. I realized this was something Christians had thought about for the whole history of the church and that there were people today studying it. And so that really redirected me. I mean, at the same time that's happening, I'm also realizing I have a job at a church that I love, but I'm also realizing I love being in the classroom pretty Mm. much more than anything. And Mm. so I'm starting to feel like maybe PhD programs are a good idea. I'm introduced to this field that's brand new to me, but speaks to something that I had been feeling for a long time. And so that kind of really directed me to the point where I look back now and I think, oh, there's a thread the whole way. Like you've had this interest Mm. and you didn't think these interests collided. And really, you've been at the right place at the right time by the grace of God to to kind of be well equipped to start doing this work. And now that I'm really kind of full time doing it, full time in in doctoral studies and doing a lot of going to churches and, and working with them on these kinds of things, it's just become so clear to me that that it takes like a real movement of God and passion to sustain you in this kind of stuff. And I'm still young and I have a lot of time to get worn out from it. But I also, mm-hmm. I've just been in a lot of contexts where I've realized, wow, this is really like my passion for this is unique to me in a way I didn't realize before. Mm-hmm. And I've just seen how God has has really directed me towards that kind of work. Hmm. Well, good. No, I'm glad I asked. Thank you for that. Um, so you have, uh, you're in a PhD program now. Political theology is mm-hmm. the, like the sweet spot there, and you you got your THM uh, from Dallas. Yep. So you've got the the spiritual formation piece and the PhD political piece. Um, what is or how would you describe spiritual formation? So I mean, that's really not a word that uh, I've talked about a ton anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it was new to me in seminary and kind of late college to realize that this was an area of thought and study for Christians. Um, I grew up in a lot of church traditions that um, didn't find themselves in a larger tradition, right? Like we were, we kind of prided ourselves on being independent and we were kind of wary of tradition and suspicious of it. And part of what ended up resulting from that was that we also didn't really think very much about the history of spiritual disciplines or the church calendar or even the history of like where our worship practices come from. Like it had never really Mm -hmm. occurred to me until seminary to think like, 
why do we do baptism? I know it's in the Bible, but like, where does it come down in terms of history? And, and how have we thought about communion? And, um, and so when I started seminary, there was a lot of interest among evangelicals in thinking about things like spiritual disciplines. And, and I think those things are really important. But what I realized as I was in those classes was that spiritual formation is, is broader than just kind of this narrow area where we say, okay, well, I'm in church and being spiritually formed, or I'm fasting, I'm being spiritually formed, or I'm reading my Bible, I'm being spiritually formed. But I realized, you know, anything that we are doing that is habitual, it's repeated, it involves our bodies, is forming us. And we can't just be formed in one part of our lives. We are always being spiritually Mm. formed. It's not like, well, I'm being politically formed with this activity, but this other one spiritually forms me. No, we're integrated wholes as humans. So it helped me think through Okay, if if being in a church building and kneeling for confession, for example, that's involves my body, it's a repetitive action. If that's forming me spiritually, then what about, like I said, when I was in a big stadium and we were all kind of standing and sitting for worship and then a politician came and gave a speech or we heard the, you know, national anthem or it it suddenly felt like, well, am I not being spiritually formed there? There's music, mm-hmm. there's storytelling, there's ritual, there's my body involved. And so it was helpful for me to think spiritual formation is just any of those things that kind of pull on how humans are are most deeply formed because of how God made us. It's always going to be things like repetition and using our bodies. And so that's not going to be confined to a church building or to practices that I consider spiritual. Those are really important and can be really formative. But it was important for me to think, okay, what other areas of my life am I doing something in community that involves a bigger story that might be shaping me in ways that I'm not very cognizant of and actually could be kind of dangerous? Hmm. That's really helpful because my default would be to say the church is responsible Mm -hmm. for spiritual formation uh, and whatever else happens outside like politics is somebody else's responsibility or some other yeah. domain and um you're you would argue that that's not true number one probably and naive number two i would imagine um so what then if you're going to form people for the good of uh the body politic or for the good of the neighbor our neighbors what kinds of things would you do Mm-hmm. Or what I do if I'm a pastor and I say, I want to form our church so that they can engage these things, what would I do? Yeah. One of the things that was important to me in the book was to say, first of all, you know, we as the church in America, especially want quick fixes to things. So I experienced when my book came out in 2020, I had a lot of churches, I had a lot of pastors who I understand why would come to me and say like, can you come to my church and like, fix it? <laughs> Can you just like come and do a Tuesday night thing and kind of fix it? We'll give and, you 45 minutes. It should be enough. Right. Right. right great. Um, and I would often say like the first thing that has to be done. And, and as you've described, Scott, I think a lot of pastors in the last few years kind of came to this realization of, oh, first of all, there's a lot of work that has to be undone. Like there's a lot of things that have to be unlearned. And I think the first step is to say, okay, let's take an audit of what is spiritually forming us and our people. Like what Mm. kinds of stories about the world have they begun to believe that they've often learned through things outside of the church, through their political participation, through their media consumption, through their families and friends and, and, you know, their cultural participation. What are the stories that seem initially to be kind of okay, but actually in some, in some significant ways are in conflict with the gospel and how have they been formed and, and what kind of habits have they 
begun to practice that form those stories in them, first of all. And then to say- Can I interrupt you there? Oh, yeah. That's so good. So your audit, you're you're talking about taking an audit of what forms people. Yeah. Is the first place to start with that, the stories they tell themselves? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, I think that's a really significant part of it. And part of what's difficult is- Um, usually the stories that people are telling themselves are not easy to discern. It's not like if I sit down with someone, they'll say, oh, let me tell you what I think about the world. Or one of my favorite things to say to people is the the story that might really have your church captive is not going to show up on your doctrinal statement or on your website, or it's not going to be this easily discernible thing that we all are cognizant of. So it takes some work to audit what kind of media consumption habits do I have? What kind of um, stories do I hear, not just in political media, but in the movies and TV shows I watch and the books I read? And mm-hmm. um, and usually how you can tell one of the like beginning points of someone's story that's begun to really hold them captive is to see what they react strongly to, to see when they feel mm-hmm. threatened is usually when the story is being kind of poked at. And it's important, it was important to me to say, most of these stories take the form of a false gospel, not just because I want to paint everything as evil and bad in opposition to the gospel, but to say that there is something uniquely captivating to the human heart for a story that says, this is what's wrong with the world, and this is what will solve what's wrong with the world. And here is the part you play in this larger redemptive story. And people outside of the church are smart and like know that this is true of humans. And so it's not surprising that you know, the media will use this, that if you want to give a really stirring political speech, you might draw on this. If you want to get someone to buy a product, <laughs> you will do this. Um, and I I was really impacted by the work of James K. Smith, who writes a lot about the, the experience of cultural liturgies, that there is a story about the world that says, you know, the real problem is your lack of comfort or the real problem is that you're not, you know, beautiful enough or the real problem is that you don't at the end of the day that you don't have this product that I am selling you. <laughs> and and that's the same is true in our political lives, right? The story that we are often consuming is a story that says this is what's ultimately wrong with the world. Here are the bad guys, here are the good guys. Black white, it's easy to vote that way. And, and getting people to kind of see how they have bought into that story is really difficult. One of the examples I give in the book is that when I was a college student, um, Bernie Sanders came and spoke at a conservative Christian school. And so unsurprisingly, they, he didn't have a lot of supporters there. So no matter what you think of him, props to him for showing up at this place that was not going <laughs> right. to like him. And and he tried to kind of meet us where we were at. He tried to say, we share this desire to help the poor and vulnerable. We just have different ideas about how to do it. So could we find some areas that we overlap, that we agree on? And I'll never forget, you know, the whole stadium of these students, arms crossed, really resistant to him. Again, not surprising. And then it was just a week or two later that Ann Voskamp, who's a, a you know, Christian speaker and writer, she is not really political in, in many ways. Um, she came and gave this this really beautiful chapel message about Esther and about, you know, really sacrificing for people on the other side of the gate. Like you should sacrifice for the poor and vulnerable. And she was talking about personal sacrifice and sacrifices the church and people were, I mean, there were blogs written about it. People were angry. And I just remember thinking, okay, we have not just learned a particular political posture that that the kind of democratic socialism of Bernie Sanders is, is something we don't agree with. We've actually learned this story about the world that says 
if you work hard and are a good person, you're guaranteed to succeed. And if you are impoverished, it is a moral failure on your part. And we don't have an obligation to help you. And and that was clarifying to me to say no one in that stadium, if I said what I just said to them, would go, ah, yes, agree 100% with that. And yet when that story was threatened by this speaker, the people came out, I mean, on online, in person, it was a it was a point of discussion on campus for many days. And and that's the kind of thing where what's difficult is that I think we both have to have an audit of our practices and our habits and where we're, we're gaining these stories. And on the other hand, there will be moments where some of those stories won't come to light unless they're confronted directly, unless we have these moments of kind of revelation where we go, okay, whoa, I thought we were all shaped by the gospel. Maybe that was really naive. And bam, this new story comes out. And that that is the difficult work for all of us, both personally to say, like, am I in relationship with people who can help me see when I am when my story that I have gained, you know, that I really hold dear is threatened? Or as a community, are we aware of what those stories could look like and what kind of false gospels that could look for a moment really close to the gospel? And, and they're right about some things and there is some truth in them. But at the end of the day, that that cannot be the ultimate problem with the world. And that cannot be the ultimate solution to the world because we believe a gospel that tells us already what the ultimate problem and ultimate solution is. But finding that out, I think, is really is really difficult. Hmm. Well, that's your story uh, about Ann Voskamp surprised me. I thought, yeah. you were gonna, I thought you were gonna say, she said the same thing as Bernie Sanders and they loved her, mm. but that's not the case. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because that, you know, again, this is a spiritually forming kind of a thing too, where we do so much to say he is the, you know, he's on the wrong team. Right. So, and if I assume she's not on the wrong team, maybe she is, but I assume she's not. So then she's okay. But you're saying it was more substantive actually than that. Uh, yeah. As far as their reaction. Interesting. Yeah. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that he had just been there. So people were ready. We were, they were kind oh. of on alert for this kind of story. And it was, it. what was clarifying to me about it was that it helped me see that these kinds of stories don't stay in their boxes. This doesn't just stay a political story that only impacts how I vote. It shapes how I think about the world and how I think about my service, even if it is on an individual level, how I think about who my neighbor is. I mean, you could think about it in terms of the poor, but you could also think about it in all sorts of other categories of like, it's not just that I learn to think of some people as enemies and that shapes how I vote. No, if I learn to think of them as enemies, that will shape how I, how I live in my neighborhood, how I am in my church, even when it's not in a kind of ostensibly political context. I appreciate you saying that because that's been one of the, the one of the things that we've been talking about uh, a fair amount lately is that when Christians create such fear of the other and do it in order to raise money for Christian causes, let's say, yeah. that that doesn't, like you said, stay in the box, then it makes it very hard for me to to love my neighbor who might, you know, fit those categories, even though they're not after me in any conceivable way. Yeah. So, and it does remind me too. I heard uh, I heard David French the other day say that people encounter Christianity first now in the political realm, largely, mm-hmm. and you know that's it. It's that kind of messaging and those kind of things that you're. Uh, saying I think that are very important for Christians to to think through and to get right because that is going to be the first place that people encounter 
people that call themselves Christians, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, as you're talking about that audit, it reminded me of something that often comes to mind for me thinking about, we have Sunday, we have a, a, maybe an hour, hour and a half of time where we're proclaiming a story and saying here, this is a story that's good. And there's restoration here. There's redemption here. And maybe if you're really plugged in, you go to a life group and you have another two hours. So there's three and a half hours a week that we are forming people with the story, uh, the, the true gospel, the true good news. But most people, many people have TV turned on for far longer than three hours and they're giving themselves, I usually use the term discipleship, but I think spiritual formation is, is, a, is, is a synonym there. Um, and, yeah. and give me a story to think about how should I think about the world? And one of the phrases you, or one of the sentences in your book that I, that really grabbed me, you said, uh, that, um, political participation is dangerously formative. And yet it is one way we creatively pursue the common good. So it's, it's these, uh, I think one of the things that's so um, seductive about political formation is that it's, it's a big story. It's not as big as the gospel, but it's big and it can do a lot of things. Yeah. And there, you can do a lot of common good, creative good there. So how, how do you, you talked about, a, it, there's a tension there. How, yeah. how would I engage, but still have the true story holding rather than the one that people often give me in that sphere? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that you, you pulled that out because it was, it was important to me to kind of set up in the first few chapters, that tension to say on one hand, it is dangerous. And I have experienced it personally. I've been in, like I said, the stadium (laughs) where it feels like we just sang a worship song to God. And now someone is getting up and giving this political speech and it feels captivating. Mm. Like I feel the pull of this, um, towards worship, which is scary. Um, And yet I tried to have a whole chapter kind of outlining the orientation of the people of God from the very beginning have been for the nations, for people outside of the people of God. And and so we don't get to to completely isolate. We don't get to completely withdraw. We could have moments where that felt felt appropriate or ways in which we try to separate ourselves. And yet that's never been the orientation of the people of God. And it's not really ultimately the story that Genesis and Revelation, these bookends, teach us to say in Genesis, we're given this command to rule and reign, to seek the flourishing of creation with the gifts God has given us. That command does not get taken away, even though sin affects how how effective we can be at it. Mm. And then in Revelation, we see a city. The people of God are not in a church. They're not even back in the garden. They're in this, this image of human creativity and community. And so if that's part of how we are oriented, then in spite of this danger, this has to be something we're involved in. And I wanted that tension to feel heavy and weighty because I think so many of our failures in the past have been kind of picking one or the other of those. There've Mm. been a lot of optimistic Christians in American history. I'm thinking especially of like the social gospel era that missed the, the, the danger of it. They just said like, let's go change and fix the world. And then that's the call of the gospel. And then there have been Christians on the other end who missed the call to engage in, in seeking flourishing for our communities because they so emphasized how different we were and how difficult sin made things. Mm. And the answer I tried to give, I mean, I was really young when I wrote this book. I'm still really <laughs> young. And so I I was not trying to say, here is the answer. Like I have found the way forward. And I and I I fear, especially for a lot of evangelical churches, that we do this. We we ignore some of our history that we share with the global historic church. And we say, we've got to reinvent the wheel. This is a problem. You know, political ideology is a problem no Christian has ever faced before. So we've got to figure it out. And so I tried to to say in the book, 
the best answer that I can give as someone who has spent some time in theological education and has a heart for figuring out what we do is to draw on the resources the church has always drawn on, which is to say, we have spiritual practices. We have the sacraments of of baptism and communion. We have the gathered community proclaiming the gospel. And what we've often done instead of drawing on those resources is said, the thing that will solve this problem is better information. If we just tell people (laughs) the truth, that will fix the problem. Um, James K. Smith has this line I love that the church has been pouring water on the head for a fire that's in the heart. Mm -hmm. That we have just said, if we had better theology, we would fix this. If we had better Bible, we would fix this. Not understanding that what's captivated people, these stories aren't just cognitive stories. This is about desire and, and love and fear and hate. And so if we can draw on the resources of the church to say, you know, baptism and communion, spiritual disciplines, the the everything in the church, both gathered and personally or in families, that draws on repetition and the use of our bodies and this larger story, especially things like music and liturgy, those things historically we have understood to shape our desires, not just fill our minds with more information. And that's been true. I mean, it's true of the very early church that's grappling with the potential political idolatry of, of new political power in Rome, that they said, okay, like we are relying on the practices that we have to shape us into a community that can be faithful in spite of this temptation. And that's not to say that those will kind of be a quick fix. It's not encouraging, I'm aware sometimes, to pastors to say, well, let's really evaluate um, how we have done communion, or let's really evaluate how we think about baptism, or let's really evaluate, are our people fasting and feasting? Do we have good practices of hospitality? Those are the kinds of things that I have seen, you know, even in the church that I'm in now, we're a couple years into making some changes in our worship. And I have seen very only very recently and very slowly, some of the things that it affects. This is a long-term strategy. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, a Tuesday night fix. Um, but I also think if the problem is this deep-rooted problem of spiritual formation, of discipleship, as you said, um, Eric, and and of the heart, we're not going to get that by kind of getting our theology straightened out. That's important. I'm literally doing a doctoral program because <laughs> I think it's really important. And yet I want to be very aware that I can have all of this knowledge and kind of run into a church ready to fix our problems. And if I haven't really spent time, you know, both thinking about how worship shapes us and forms us and taking this understanding of desire and stories into counsel and into one-on-one conversations and into Bible study, like that is the kind of slow work that I think can help us you know, keep this tension alive to say that we're going to be involved in the life of the world, but we're also going to come into it with the resources the church has always used to combat kind of those temptations and the danger of it. There's so many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'll just, uh, though, I'll direct, I'll, I'll pick on Eric with this one. He's He is responsible for life groups in our church. And so you just, you just, you've said it two or three times, but you just said, I'm bringing into this relationship or into this group the conversation about um, my spiritual formation or my political um, thoughts. I mean, how do you have that conversation in yeah. a life group? That's, I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, like you just have one of those, but it's quite another thing to actually have it. Totally. Yes. Um, you know, I, over the last couple of years, while I've been, you know, going to churches and talking about this book, I've come across a variety of really great resources that are like, you know, the Center for Public Justice or some other organizations will come up with curriculums to do this. 
And I think that's great. I actually think those curriculums can be great for small group leaders or for pastors more than for congregations. Because what I have experienced and what I hear over and over again from people around the country when I talk to people in churches is that the best conversations that happen about this stuff are more organic than that curriculum can create. And they're more long-term. And the best example that I can give is, is I spent during the lead up to the 2020 election, six months in the book of Jeremiah with a small group of women. And which was an audacious goal. Yeah. (laughs) It was perfect. (laughs) Um, Yes. And it was, it was perfect. And what was, I thought what I realized later was so good about that because it really was not a strategic decision on my part. I just love Jeremiah. Um, was that, first of all, everything is covered there. Like there is no political thing in the moment, that, you know, sexuality, race, you know, injustice, like everything kind of get gets brought up in Jeremiah. But a couple of things made that so helpful. One, those conversations were happening in the context of, of good, trusting relationships. Um, they weren't coming because we said, hey, anyone who's interested in politics, come on a Tuesday night. Because anyone who comes on a Tuesday night to talk about politics is like ready to fight <laughs> and like their <laughs> walls are up and they're, you know, but instead it was, you know, we have trusted relationships here and we spend time in prayer with each other. Like we know each other deeply. Um, if we're going to have a difficult conversation about something like racial injustice, we know people's history and we know where people are at and we love each other deeply and we've prayed for each other over difficult things. But we also have come together with a shared desire to learn what scripture says. And so we have this, it, it's not, it is common ground in a certain sense. I realize, I'm, you know, I just spent this last summer writing a book about scripture that's been used in American political history. So I'm very aware that we we do not historically agree <laughs> on how to interpret the Bible for political questions, mm-hmm. but we at least were coming together saying, we share this desire to understand what the word of God means for us today, right now. And And it was amazing, truly. I mean, this was a church that had a lot of political disagreement. Um, Like a lot of churches in 2020, it was tense and difficult. And we were coming into this study, um, you know, barely able to even be in person together because of COVID. And um, Mm. it was hard. And yet there were things that happened in that group, conversations that we had about touchy things like sexuality and money and that that people in my seminary context were swearing up and down couldn't happen. Like, no, in, in this heated context, you just can't do it. And I was watching it happen. And so I, I spent part of seminary as part of an assignment trying to create what would be like my ideal curriculum to kind of work on political discipleship for a church. And so I've thought a lot about it. And yet I fully finished that project and thought this is I think this is a great idea for training leaders, for training people who will be you know thinking about this from a structural level. But I don't actually think that's the answer. I really think us spending time in the word of God. But again, with openness to those conversations happening, you can't have a leader in that group that says, oh, no, 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 we're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a, a real communal life together. I mean, I have been in church contexts where we had small groups, but we weren't eating together. We weren't really in each other's lives. Um, and that kind of, those kinds of things make a difference. And I, again, I understand why sometimes it's a frustrating thing to be like, I don't know, maybe in six weeks, you'll have a conversation about these hard things. And maybe in mm-hmm. two weeks later, you'll have another one. And yet I think, I think that's the way that this, this happens in a healthy way. Well, and I think some of your formation and some of those conversations, you have to recognize that my willingness to talk about the Bible and learn from the Bible forms all of my life and not just yeah. this narrow mm-hmm. slice that I call my Christian life. Yes. And that, that I think is one of the 
that's one of my favorite things about your book is that you said, you know, it's not just a small sliver that's affected by Christianity. It's the whole thing. Um, I do have a, I do have a different question that is related. In fact, it, you uh, said it's really early in the book. Uh, in fact, it's the first thing I think I highlighted. I just said younger Christians have never tasted the kind of cultural power that previous generations watched deteriorate. And that that might have even been the forward and you didn't write it. I don't know. But it was the first thing I highlighted. And I, yeah. and you said a minute ago that you're still young and and I'm not. And one of the things that I have recognized is that even with our podcast, I don't know that there's anybody older than me listens to our podcast. And there is a generational aspect to some yeah. of the struggle. And I could you from your perspective just kind of say what you've noticed or what you think about yeah. that and um, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you pulled that line. It was one of the things that, you know, I tried to very, very briefly at the, in the beginning of the book, talk about a little bit of the history of American evangelicalism in politics. And I spent so much more time this summer <laughs> reading about it and thinking about it. And, um, you know, I was at a meeting recently of a bunch of, of like important Christian leaders. I was like, way out of my league. <laughs> These are people like running important institutions. I don't know why they asked me to be there. And I was sitting and I was the youngest person by quite a bit in the room. And um, people kept talking about like the era of American political life when we got together and we loved each other and we could compromise on things. And, and I just said, like, I appreciate, like, I can understand why you would be nostalgic for this time that you remember, but what a lot of young Christians hear when when you say things like that, one, they have no experience of that. I mean, I, I'm pretty young and I don't have much memory of that, but people who are even a generation below me, I mean, 2016 is the first election they remember. So that's there's no sense of this kind of imagined past. Um, and even that imagined past is a little bit of nostalgia. Like, you know, it's not, I, some, real. Yeah. It's not real. Someone not real. in that someone in that group in one breath could say that. And then the next day while we had a meeting about something else was talking about how he remembers the civil rights movement. So I thought, okay, that's, that's not a time of tons of like congeniality in politics. There was some real, I mean, this is violence in the streets kind of stuff. So I, I think younger Christians in particular, not only don't remember, you know, a time when there was not this kind of political conflict, but they, they recognize how much, as you said earlier, Scott, how much of it is about, their faith. Like they don't know a world where evangelical doesn't mean, you know, Republican or oh, Trump sure. supporter or, um, and so they, even in some of my research, you know, this summer, it was like, I really had to work to, to, to put myself in earlier mindsets where that relationship wasn't so tight because to, mm -hmm. to my generation younger, it's like, that's, and even if they're really resistant to that, that's what they know. And so what has been you know, now I'm at a context at Duke, I'm around a lot of younger master's students who are really sometimes quite angry at the church. They've experienced mm -hmm. some difficult things. They're frustrated about politics. And it has taken a lot of work sometimes to get to a conversation where we can say there is something outside of this. Like there is a Christian faith that is not the last 30 years. <laughs> like there is a Christian faith that has had a different relationship to politics. I mean, I, I don't remember if I say this in the book or not, but when the morning after the 2016 election or the, yeah, the morning after the election, I was distraught with things I was seeing on social media, really angry, awful things. And I was sitting in a coffee shop, frustrated, trying to focus on my homework. And I was translating in Greek Acts 1-8. 
Um, and it was one, this really meaningful moment to realize, goodness, the faith that I feel like is being corrupted and maligned right now is so old that I have to learn an ancient language no one speaks anymore to translate the original manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And even this line that I am translating is Jesus saying to the disciples, you know, go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I am at the ends of the earth. Like they could not have imagined America. They couldn't have imagined America in 2016. And it was helpful for me to get that perspective to say, not only do I have no memory of this cultural power that some of my elders in the faith feel really bent on preserving, but that's like a blip in this whole story. And there is a whole lot of other stuff outside of it. And I both don't want to put too much weight in in either their authority. I don't want to kind of hope on them. And then if they fail, have my faith really be rocked. But I also don't want to base my frustration with the faith on just these mm -hmm. people that in the grand scheme of this large story are not the whole story. And there are people, even in my own direct kind of generations, who have done really faithful, good, important work in the world that was motivated by love for people and, and the fire of the gospel. And I want that to be central to the kinds of work I want to do now and not, I, I, I care about the immediate context. I think it's really important, but I think what some people don't realize is that for, for younger Christians, there's going to have to be some work to get us out of just focusing on the most immediate recent past mm. and, and learning some new ways that the church has dealt with a lock with a lack of political power in the past, um, even loss like ebbs and flows of it. And we can learn from, from those Christians in the past about mm. how to do that faithfully. Is that what your next book is about then? Sounds like that's some of the work that you have been doing recently. Yeah, the next book is really, it's it's looking at different times in American history that biblical passages have been used for political purposes and evaluating if, if those were faithful interpretations or not with the goal to say, you know, can we learn better? As I, as I said about Jeremiah, can we learn better how to have conversations with each other about the Bible that is a common ground for us? And could it maybe be helpful to learn how to read it well for political purposes by looking at examples that are not just the last 10 years? Like, could we look hmm. really far back and say, okay, well, you know, loyalist priests in the Revolutionary War used Romans 13 to say the revolution shouldn't happen. Is that good or is that bad? And does and does what we think about that say something about how we use Romans 13 for political protest today or does it not? Um, but having some distance from just what immediately is happening politically, I thought would be would be helpful. Hmm. And is that the book that's coming out in August? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, good. I'll look forward to that. That's because one thing is wish list right now. <laughs> um, we'll have to have you back to talk about that because that's one of the things that we've recognized is that you've got to get the two things really help with with this topic for me. One is distance, either with respect to time, like history, yeah. or distance with respect to space. Yeah. in geography i mean the christians one of the things i did when our church was i mean the mandates were just changing regularly and it was really frustrating i called a missionary that uh, was a missionary to china and i just mm. said how would the church in china be handling the uh, wearing masks as they gather <laughs> and I, that's what he did he laughed at me and he just said you know what they would be just really happy if they were allowed to gather. And I realized that you know, time and space are really two of your allies yeah. in figuring out what kind of what the church ought to be doing in the world. And so, yeah, I appreciate that. I, yeah, I really look forward to 
um, to that. Well, there's there's lots more. I do hope people will read your book. I really did enjoy it, and I think you I think you nailed what, in my estimation, of course, I'm a pastor, so spiritual formation for the sake of the world is, I think, the sweet spot of what Jesus was doing when he said, "Love, Lord, you got with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself." And so uh, thank you for your work on that. And uh, thank you in advance for what's uh, coming up. Uh, Kaylin has, uh, well, I I just want to say she's like started showing up everywhere, it seems like to me. Uh, I've seen her on a number of uh, podcasts and uh, webinars, and she just became a fellow at the Center for Christianity and Public Life, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Congratulations on that. What does that mean even? I don't even know. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm just in the backwoods here. I don't know what that means. It's it's a great, it's a group of people who are all kind of doing this kind of work. And we're going to spend a year together um, reading a lot of things and and comparing notes on our experience and trying nice. to, to kind of both learn how to do this well in terms of practical resources, but also um, really it's, it's run by a, a good friend of mine, Michael Weir, who, you know, is writing a book on Dallas Willard right now after he worked for the Obama administration. So he's someone who's right. thinking very closely about, um, faith and spiritual formation and politics. Mm. And so a part of what we're doing is, is also spending time, you know, for ourselves in spiritual disciplines and trying to kind of be the kind of people who can be well energized and well, you know, healthy enough to do this kind of work. Hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're, um, Kaylin is a really interesting person to follow on Twitter, and uh, <laughs> I will link to how to find her there. And she is, a, are you a co-host on the uh, mm-hmm. Holy Post podcast? Do you have other podcasts too? Or have I just seen you guesting on all these other podcasts? Yeah, you know, that's the one which <laughs> takes up enough of my thoughts. So <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, Kaylin, thank you for spending some time with us today. And uh, I will uh, look forward to reading the next book and would love to talk to you about that, uh, I'm sure. So anyway, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, both of you. Yeah. Well, and thank you listeners for listening in. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review would go a long way to getting this to other people and share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com and we look forward to the next conversation. Yeah,